keep getting confused. I keep pushing the button the wrong direction, so uh, thank you, Matt. <laughs> uh, if you're a guest of ours, uh, we're thrilled uh, that you are here today. Uh, on the, in the seats in front of you, there are some, uh, some Connect cards, and just it gives us an opportunity to know how we can uh, help you and pray for you, so I'd love for you to, to fill that out. They go in the offering boxes, which are in the uh, in the, uh, against the wall in the lobby out there. But if you're, if you're new with us or maybe the first time in a long time, uh, we are working our way through the, through the law of God. And uh, so if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to join me in Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter number 20. And Bill, for some reason, it's not showing up on this, this uh, TV for me. So if you could help me out with that. Exodus chapter number 20. Now, you may have heard something like this before, but it's amazing how a small mark of punctuation can change the entire structure of a sentence. And by changing the structure of a sentence, it changes the meaning of a sentence. For example, let me show you. Let's eat grandma or let's eat grandma. Um... Adding the comma makes it seem as if there's a kind invitation uh, for grandma to sit down with you for dinner. Uh, Without the comma, it almost appears as if you're going to sit down for dinner with grandma as the main course. Uh, How about this one? A man-eating chicken or a man-eating chicken? Uh, the hyphen changes it from a normal activity to a large, violent rooster who is on the loose, you know, a man-eating chicken. Or, or how about this? I'm sorry I love you. <laughs> or I'm sorry, period, I love you. I think the period could actually save a marriage uh, right there. Or, or, or how about this one? A, a woman without her man is nothing. Or a woman colon. Without her, comma, man is nothing. Now, oh, there we go. There we go. I, was, <laughs> I was waiting for the ladies to, uh, to chime in on that one. So absolutely. I mean, that just adding a small mark of punctuation changes how we see everything. And today, I plan for this to be the last time we come back to the Ten Commandments in, in the book of Exodus and, and, and look at it. But this time, I want, I want us just to be able to take just a little bit of a shift and change and be able to see these commands one last time in a different way than we've ever looked before. Now, for the past four weeks, we've discovered that so much more was going on at Mount Sinai when God gave the law. So much more was going on than just a divine being telling his people how they had to live. Rather, we saw the God of Israel named Yahweh was seeking a relationship, a loving relationship, a covenantal relationship with his people by saying, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And this, this appears so easily. We see it in the, in the first three commands, which is as far as we've gotten so far. He says, I, I want to be your God, so have no other gods before me. I want to be your God. Make no graven images of other gods. And then he said, as we saw last, the last two weeks, I want you to be my people. So take my name and bear it, not in vain. Don't, don't take my name to the nations in vain. So we see it's a committed covenantal relationship that is taking place at, at Mount Sinai. But, but here's the issue that we haven't addressed yet. 
The bride, the nation of Israel, doesn't know the groom, the God of Israel. See, for 400 years, this nation had lived in Egypt, which was a land of many, many false gods. And so what did they know about their God? Well, they knew he was a God of their fathers, and that's about as far as it went. Because if you read through the story of Exodus, it's Moses at a burning bush who finally receives the name of God. And so he goes back to Egypt and he says, our God has a name, the name I am, the name Yahweh. Like, we don't know this God. But then through the plagues, Yahweh shows his dominance over the other gods of Egypt and shows his authority over creation throughout those 10 plagues. So they're, they're getting to witness Yahweh as, as authoritative and as a creator, so they're seeing that. Through the Passover and through the parting of the Red Sea, they see the protective nature of this God protecting them while bringing judgment against their enemies. And so they see, well, this is different. So this God also cares about us. He's protecting us. And then when they were hungry, manna fell from the sky. And when they were thirsty, water came from a rock. And so now they're seeing this, this God. We know his name. We know he is powerful. We know he is protective. We know he is providing for us. But now this same God wants a committed covenantal relationship with the people, but they don't really know him yet. Kind of reminds me of a family that I knew growing up. The, the dad was in the army, and he was sent to Korea during the Korean War. But when he came home, he brought a young Korean child with him. This is a young girl that he met on the streets, and something had happened to her parents, whether they were killed or whether they were, they were taken and captured. But this young girl was basically living on her own, and he brought her home. And when she arrived in their house, she didn't really know this guy. She knew that he was a soldier. She knew that he had compassion. She knew that he was protective and that he was strong. And, and she sensed the fact that this man is opening up his family to me and he's providing a home for me and he's giving me a bed to, to sleep in and he's giving me food to eat. But she did not know this man until she began to live with this man. She couldn't live anymore like she had when she was in Korea on the streets she had to understand there was a new culture that she lived in, a new family with whom she lived, a new set of relationships, a new set of expectations, a new set of boundaries in this home. But all of that showed her the character of this man who had brought her from a land that was dangerous and scary to a place that was comforting and loving. That man died about three years ago. At his funeral, this young lady who was now 50 or 60 talked about her dad. She got to know him because she lived with him. She shared about how much he loved her. 
That is exactly what Yahweh was hoping to, hoping to take place as they gathered at this mountain. You don't know me yet, but I want to show you who I am. And I'm going to do that by committing myself to you and giving you a set of principles on which to live by that reveal to you who I am and how I want you to live. I will rescue you from your burdens. I will provide what you need. But we have to change some things. We have to change some things because you're coming from a land full of idolatry. You're coming from a land where you were in slavery. And I'm bringing you to a place of freedom and love. So you can't live the same way you used to. So let's talk about how you're supposed to live in community with a holy God. You see, as these commands are given, we're seeing who Yahweh himself is and how he wants his people to reflect his character. You see, we have something a little bit different. We have the written word. We have Jesus, right? We look at Jesus to see the character of Yahweh. We look at Jesus to see his love and his compassion. They didn't have that. All they had were now these command. Let's read them. But I want to read them again with this idea of we're not seeing how to live as much as we are seeing the character of the one speaking. Verse number 8 in Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to pick it up because we've spent a lot of time on those first three commands. So we're going to pick it up in verse number eight with the fourth command. The Bible says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Can I, just, can I just pause one more time before we go on to the rest? See, we're not just seeing you must do this, but we're seeing I'm asking you to pick up my character. I rested. I want you to be a people who rest in me. And let's read through the rest. Verse 12 says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall, shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Sorry. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your now, if you've read through these commands before, you may have, may have heard them being split up in, in, in this way. Like in the first four commands, Yahweh is basically saying, love me, right? Have no other gods. Make no graven images. Bear my name, but don't bear it in vain. And remember the Sabbath and be like me. And then in the last six commands, it's basically like, love your neighbor. This is how you are to treat other people. Some people will even take these, these commands and divide them and, and, and assume that this might be why we have two tablets. 
four that say this is how you are to love God and six that say this is how you are to live in a relationship with other people. Just as a side note, I don't believe that's why there are two tablets. I mean, the Bible itself tells us that the tablets were written on both sides. So we know that there was writing on both sides. But likely the reason there were two tablets is because that's how treaties were made between kings in those days. If two kings came together to say, hey, we will, take a, we, we will make a treaty to, to defend one another against our common enemy, there would be two tablets and the, the tablets would be exactly the same and both of the parties would take them to their corresponding locations, set them in the temple of their highest God because their highest God would be seen as making sure that they kept their word. That's why there are two tablets. We know what happens to the two tablets of Israel, right? They both end up in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of Yahweh, the God of Israel, rested. So the God of Israel would watch over those covenants that the people had made and hold them to their word. And we see he does because he will judge them for their rebellion against those words at some point. But since there's no greater power, force, or authority than Yahweh himself, he is responsible to keep his own word, right? It's his name. It's his reputation on the line. And so those, both of those tablets go into the Ark of the Covenant where Yahweh holds both Israel and himself accountable as the highest authority in the land. So I'm not going to suggest that the dividing the covenants based on like me and God and, and, and you and I, but I do want to approach the Ten Commandments with a, with a little bit of a different understanding than we may have ever heard before. I know you're probably not going to read, read all of these from your seat unless you have a good set of binoculars uh, right now, but I'm just showing you, just lining them up, the first five and the second five, and what I'm going to share with you today is mostly what I've studied from my rabbinical teaching that I've, I've gone, uh, gone in a lot. And, and so I'm not going to share anything new from me. It's not original with me. This is all rabbinical teaching. If you were to divide the commands in half, what you'll find are the first four deal with God and number five deals with your parents, which all of a sudden makes how do these five line up? But the first five actually do have something in common. All of them deal with your creators. The first four of these commands deal with your divine heavenly creator, and the fifth command deals with your earthly creators. Right? Just as, uh, just as God formed us in the womb, as Psalm 139 says, right? we know he's our creator. We were made in his image, um, Many of you can say that you share the image of your parents, your earthly parents. And so this, these first five actually deal with our creators, and it's more than authority because, because our bosses come and go. Our bosses one day may be our boss, and another day they may not be. But we're never going to spend a day on this earth when Yahweh's not our creator and our parents are not our earthly creators. And that's the... Kind of the first layer of the law is creator, peers. But we could go a little bit lower into a second layer of the law, and what we're going to find is a corresponding principle between that first one, shall have no other gods before me, and the sixth one, the first one with our creator, and the first one with our peers, there's actually a corresponding principle. 
We're going to walk through those five corresponding principles this morning, again, to see that the Ten Commandments are far more than just this is how you must live. There's five important principles to pull out of these Ten Commands. Let's take a look. First one, I am Yahweh, have no other gods before me. Number six says, do not murder. What do these have to do with each other? Well, let's start with murder, right? Why would we ever choose to take someone's life? Well, the answer is because we have convinced ourselves that our lives will be better off without that person's presence. Whether it's because they have hurt me or they've threatened me, because they want something I have or because they know something bad about me or for some other reason. The bottom line is we have convinced ourselves, I do not want you in my life, so I will eliminate you from my life. And we can't murder God. but we can remove God's presence and influence from our lives. How? By placing our passion and our resources and our lives and our loyalty to other gods. So now all of a sudden this corresponding principle comes up. Well, we need to value, not eliminate, but value the presence of Yahweh and value the presence of others in our lives. Hey, simply because someone makes your life inconvenient, that's not a reason to dismiss them or to ignore them. We've got to value the presence of others in our life. And it's more than just saying, well, I'm not going to get rid of you. I'll allow you to exist. It's, it's, not, it's more than that. It's saying, I am going to bring you into my life and value what you have to offer me. The problem is people often don't do the things that please us. So it's easy to push them off. And the same thing happens with God. How many times does God act in a way that isn't pleasing to you? And then the question is, do I eliminate him from my life and seek after how to please myself? Or do I value the presence of Yahweh saying, he knows me, he's my creator. Come help me value what you value. See, Jesus touches on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, those who murder are in danger of the judgment. And then he says, but I say unto you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are in danger of the judgment. Murder, hatred on the same degree, yes, because they both eliminate the presence and influence of people in our lives. We must value the presence of Yahweh, and we must value the presence of others in our lives. That's one corresponding principle. Let me go through the others briefly. Have no other gods. Do not commit adultery. Basically, for number two, we could say, do not commit idolatry. Well, what do idolatry and adultery have in common? Well, sacred relationships, God, spouse, have been betrayed. Idolatry is committing yourself to one God and saying, I will serve you, I will be yours, and then turning and worshiping other gods. And adultery is saying, I will be yours to a man or to a woman, to your spouse, I will be yours, but then turning yourself and giving yourself to someone who you have not made that promise to. 
and corresponding principle, treasure your sacred relationship with Yahweh and others. Let me go on. Number three, do not take my name in vain or do not bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. The eighth principle says do not steal. How do we see a corresponding principle here? Well, you could steal possessions from people, but you can't steal something physical from God. Is there anything you could take from God? Well, when Christ followers live no different than the unbelievers around them, you know what God does not get? Glory. The glory he deserves is not given to him when we live in a way that is contrary to his word. And so the corresponding principle, honor what belongs to Yahweh and to others. I don't steal from other people, and I live in a way that the glory due to our God is given to him. Let's go on number four. Remember the Sabbath. Do not bear false witness. Now, I have to pause here and explain. Bearing false witness, sometimes we, we sum that up by saying don't lie. That is an inaccurate understanding. Not to bear false witness is a legal term when it's talking about I will represent the character of someone. Because actually, if you read in your Bible, there's lying that takes place. When Rahab is approached, she's hiding two Hebrew spies, and the, the people come to her and say, where are they? And she's like, I don't know. That's a lie. It's not bearing false witness. It's a lie. But there would have been a greater atrocity taking place, murder. It's why, it's why when people who hid the Nazis in Europe, should they have lied? Absolutely. I mean, if they would have told the truth, those people would have died, Right? And so bearing false witness is not do not lie. Bearing false witness is saying I will represent the character of a person in a legal way. And what bearing false witness says is if I do not accurately portray this person, they will be convicted of something they are innocent of or they will be let go of something they are guilty of because I bore false witness. And it was such a big deal. The reason there's a command about it, it was such a big deal that if you were to bear false witness and it was to be found out, you would receive the punishment of the person for whom you bore false witness against. Okay, so now that you understand what bearing false witness means, what does that have to do with the Sabbath? Why did God give the Sabbath? He gave the Sabbath so that his people would rest and not work seven days. And what he said is, I will provide for you. You rest on that seventh day, and you trust me to provide all that you need. And so what we're doing, what these Jews would do if they were going to work seven days, or if they would not take off that seventh year, or if they did not celebrate the jubilee of the seven times seven, what they were doing was they were bearing false witness against Yahweh himself, saying, you can't provide for me. I'll have to provide for myself. You didn't or can't or won't keep your word. So the 
corresponding principle here is no. We've got to live in a way where we protect the reputation of Yahweh and we don't bear false witness against our neighbor. We don't, we protect the reputation of people around us. Listen, this is so foundational, right? You got to understand this. What is salvation? Salvation says, I trust the work of Jesus Christ in my place to be all that I need to have a right standing with God. That's what salvation comes down to. Most of the people in the world, if you ask them, what do you need in order to attain eternal life? They will say, you must be a good person. In order to be a good person, you must do good works. And when you do good works in order to be a good person so you can have eternal life, you are bearing false witness against Jesus who said, I have done it for you. Believe in me. We've got to hate church. We should have good, we should do good works, right? We should be different than the world around us, but we don't do good works because we're trying to earn something. We do good works because we have been given something through our faith in Jesus. Last, honor your parents and do not covet. Like, this, this one's really, like, how in the world could these have anything to do with one another? Well, what is coveting? Coveting is telling myself I'll only be happy if I have what you have. And if you drill down to the root of that, coveting is saying I'll only be happy if I can be who you are. Because I could get the car that you drive and I'm still not going to be happy. There's something about your life that I feel like I have to have in order to finally be happy. Well, well, let me ask you this question. Who is responsible for making you who you are in an earthly sense? Your parents. Your parents have shaped who you are. Your parents have given you what you have. And this corresponding principle is, hey, we must appreciate what we've received from Yahweh and from others. Meaning this, who gave you your parents? Yahweh. Did you have a choice? No. Did you have a choice in what your parents gave you? No. So what choice do you have to be content with what you have been given, and not say, I must be like someone else. I remember the very first time our, I ever took a missions trip. I took a group of teenagers to Jamaica. We stayed at a hotel, and we were out doing some mission work uh, one of the mornings, working through, uh, walking through a, a very dry and dusty street. And there was, there was a young girl. She was probably about 12 or 13, a Jamaican girl. And she, was, she got to become very close friends with, with the girls that were going out. We were inviting people to an outdoor service we were going to do. And, and she just followed them around all day. Well, we were going to go back to the hotel and then go out to eat. And then the next day, we were going to come back to this place. And this girl asked, could I go with you? 
And so the leader of our, of our group went to this girl's parents and explained what was going on. He was the pastor in that area, so they, they already had a relationship. And her mom gave her permission to come with us to the hotel and, and, and then spend the evening with us. The girls in the room that she stayed in caught me as we were going to the restaurant, and they were in tears. And here's what they said. When she laid down on the bed and put her head on the pillow, she giggled. She never had laid her head on a pillow before. She stepped into the shower and didn't know what to do because her shower was a five-gallon bucket with a soup ladle outside. And these girls went in and showed her how to work the shower, and you could have hot water and cold water, and you could mix it together, and you could be comfortable. And she, again, she giggled, and she laughed as she was taking a shower for the first time with indoor plumbing, the first time in her life as a 12-year-old girl. And all of a sudden, these young ladies who had been given so much but had never realized it, looked at someone who had so little and all of a sudden began to appreciate what they had. We always look at what we don't have and what someone has more than us and say, I want that. And that's why we live unappreciative lives. We have been so blessed in this nation. So blessed. We ought to sometime turn our eyes to those who have nothing and say, look at all that I have been given. We sure complain a lot, and we do it quickly, don't we? But there, there's another layer, a third layer, and it's this. The commandments not only provide principles for me to enjoy a loving relationship with God and man, but these principles are for the community in which I live as well. Because when an individual, when one person fails to live out these principles, the community around that person suffers. Think about it. Do not murder what happens when someone gets murdered? Well, a person's life is gone, but a husband or a wife is gone. A mother or a father is gone. A son or a daughter is gone. A brother or a sister is gone. And the, val the presence of someone in their community for the rest of their lives that they would have lived is gone. It affects a community. What happens when adultery takes place? It's not just about a man and a woman. It is about a family and another family and the children and the parents and the community in which they live has been shattered because an individual did not follow the principles of the Ten Commandments. You steal something. You lie about somebody. It always affects the community. Even the first five as our relationship with God. You look, look if, you, if you know your Bibles, do you remember a man named Achan who went into the, into the walls of Jericho and after being very clearly said, don't take anything, don't take anything, he took some gold and he took a garment and he hid it. One man hid it. 
One man chose not to obey the Lord. And what took place? The next time that nation went out to war, the entire nation lost the battle. 36 men did not come home from war because one man. See, it's about the community. Here's the problem, though. Let's get real. Let's get real. When you give a list of standards to live by, like, like what we just read, to a group of people who are inherently sinners, there's going to be chaos. And lots of chaos. Right? Like, I don't know about you, but if, if, if I had to just tell you all the ways that I fail to live by these principles that Yahweh has given his people, we'd be here all day. Because I am a sinner, and I am, I am a sinner to the core of my being. And so even when I look at these, these laws and these rules, and I want to keep them, I will fail. Huh. Oh, no. But there is hope. And the hope comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Because, as we've said, Jesus changes everything, right? And here's what Jesus does to the law. He returned to the purpose of the law. You say, what do you mean by that? Remember when Jesus was approached by a lawyer and he's like, hey, master, hey, rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? Remember Jesus' answer? Thank you, Chet. Jesus returns to the purpose of of the law. Sometimes we read Jesus' answer and we're so amazed. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord, love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, wait a second. That's the whole purpose of the law. This shouldn't take us by surprise as followers of Jesus because the Ten Commandments were given as a covenant. Love me as I love you, Yahweh says. But what had happened to the law? The law had become a measuring stick to say, well, I keep this many commands and you don't. I am better than you. Oh, my goodness. Could we describe that any better than the one word of religion? And I'm sure that you've heard this, but are you living out religion or are you living in a relationship? Because what religion does is religion uses the law to look better than other people. But what a relationship does is it uses the law to draw closer. To, we're reminded of his compassion. We're reminded of his character. We're reminded of his heart. We don't look at other people when we look at the law. We should look at our king when we look at the law. It's all about relationship. And Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't just go back to the purpose of the law, but Jesus actually Remove the limits of the law. You see, when Jesus gathered with his, his 12 disciples on the Last Supper, he makes a crazy, to us, crazy statement that only God can do. Because this is what Jesus says in John 13. A new 
commandment. Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. Who can give commands on how to live? Only our creator. Only the one who has authority over us. No, no, no. Nobody can just go around and say, I have a new commandment for you to live. You can make a new command in your home, and those you've been given authority over must keep that. But you can't make a new commandment in your home and ask my home to follow it. But this is Jesus telling the world, I have a new commandment that you love one another. We've heard that already, right? We love one another. We've already heard that. Let me finish. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. What did the limit used to be? Love your neighbor. Can you finish that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Limit. Because I love myself enough not to hurt myself. I love myself enough not to sacrifice too much. And here's what Jesus is saying. You start loving your neighbor the way I have loved you. And Jesus gave everything. Which means Jesus has just removed the limit of love from the law. So the commandment is not love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people the way that you have been loved by God. Hey, listen, let's just be honest. We all place limits on our love. We all do. But this command says you shouldn't. Well, I'll love that person if they love me first. I'm really glad that Jesus didn't say that. Well, I'll love that person when they start acting in a way that makes me happy. Really glad Jesus didn't say that. Well, I love that person, but I'm only until it hurts. That's not what Jesus said. I will give everything. And now I want you to love people the way I have loved you, which means disciples of Jesus are called to offer limitless love for one another. And you say, I can't do that. Listen, that's my first thought. I can't do that. There's no way. But you don't know how rude they were. You don't know how mean they were. You don't know how they treated me. I don't. You're absolutely right. And you don't have the power to love someone the way they deserve to be loved. You don't. But the Holy Spirit can bring that into your life. And people who have hurt you, they can experience the same forgiveness that you experienced when you hurt Jesus. That's how we're to live. And this is it. This is my favorite. I've been waiting to get to this all day. Jesus also, he changed not just the purpose. He went back to the purpose. Not just removing the limits, but Jesus transformed the future of the law. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus changes everything. One of my favorite Bible verses is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Sometimes people would, would call this the great exchange, where I give my sin to Jesus, he gives me his righteousness in return. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become... It's, it's, 
to, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, here's what Jesus does. The one who knew no sin, he takes our sin upon himself and he hands us his perfect righteousness. Jesus lived out the law perfectly, which means this. When you stand before God, you'll get to stand in the righteousness of Jesus, saying, yeah, all those commands you wrote, I lived them out. <laughs> Jesus changes this because like, what that means is Romans 8.1 becomes alive. Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Jesus. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We've broken these commands. We have not loved as we should have. But when we stand before God because of Jesus, we will stand there as if we had. Come on. What a good God. Here, here we go. This is my favorite part. Because of Jesus, the commandments change. From being a mirror to show us who we are in our sin, they change into a portrait to show us who we are becoming in Jesus. Okay, right? You look at the Bible and you read the Bible, and what does James even say? It's a mirror. Don't look at it and walk away and forget who you are. It's a mirror, and it's a mirror to show you how much of a sinner you are, and how much of a savior he is. I look into that law, yeah, I didn't do that, yeah, I didn't do that, yeah, I didn't do that. Jesus, thank you for what you're willing to offer me. But here's the thing, because of Jesus, the law is not simply a reflection of our failures. The law now becomes a picture of what we are becoming. Because if you take the words, in Christ, and add them before every one of the Ten Commandments, you will see your future. When your eyes meet Jesus, you can say, in Christ, I shall not have any other gods before Yahweh. In Christ, I will make no graven images. In Christ, I will not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. In Christ, I will remember the Sabbath. In Christ, I will honor my parents. In Christ, I will not murder. I will not steal. I will not bear false witness. I will not covet. In Christ, I will be a perfect keeper of the law. That's our future. Man. That is so exciting for me. So take it this week and allow these truths to deepen your relationship with Jesus and other believers. Read about him. Speak to him. Let him speak to you, right? But it's not just about your relationship with him. Hey, hey, before you leave today, before you leave this gathering, Take the time to enjoy the fellowship and deepen the relationship with other believers in this room. I, I get it. 
I get it in churches. There are people who want to slip in and slip out. It's not the purpose of the church. It's about investing our lives into one another and enjoying the fellowship of the community of saints. Value your relationship with Jesus and other believers. Hey, listen, here's how you value your relationship with Jesus. If you say, I have failed, you confess and you forsake and you repent and repentance restores relationship. That's what Jesus brings. But I also want you to value the relationship that you share with other believers. If you've failed another believer, if you have hurt another believer, then go to them and ask forgiveness. And try to seek restoration, because here's the thing. As believers, we're commanded to love one another as Jesus loved us, which means if someone has hurt you and is seeking reconciliation, we love them like Jesus loved us. And last, celebrate the forgiveness and the future of Jesus with other believers. It's what we get to do here on Sunday mornings. Sometimes I, sometimes I, I go back to the, I, I spent the first 41 years of my life in a, in a church where if someone raised their hand, the only reason they did was to ask a question. I left that church to go be a pastor in Virginia, and, and I got to this church and people all around me, as they were, as they were singing, would, would raise a hand occasionally, like, what's your, what's your question? Oh no, that hand's not for you, that hand's for him. It took me a while. It took me a while to get the courage as a pastor. It took me a while to get the courage to do this during singing. And you know why it took me that long? Because I was worried about what everybody else would think. What? 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 How are we not encouraging one another to worship, freely worship the king? Have you been here the last couple of weeks and you've kind of heard somebody say something during a song? That, that would be me. I love to raise my hands and I don't do it because it's a show. I don't do it for the people who are up here. I do it because I want my king to know. I want to celebrate who you are. I want to celebrate what you're doing. And I don't care who sees me. But sometimes we so care what people think of us None of you made it possible for me to have eternal life, but he did, so I'm going to live for his pleasure and his glory and his praise and his honor, and if you want to join in with me, you feel free. You don't have to do it the way I do it, but you should feel the freedom when you step into this room to worship our king, however the Lord lays it on your heart. Chelsea, I'm still waiting for you to get down on your knees one of these times while you, while you sing. And if you do, we shouldn't go, what's she doing? We should give her the space to say, oh, that's her and her king, and they're having their moment together. You don't have to. 
You don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to worship. You don't have to yell. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything. But you should have the freedom to. Because what we're doing in here is we are celebrating what our king has done for us. And then we go out there to live it. If we can't get excited with a group of other believers, how are we going to get excited with a group of unbelievers? Let's let the goodness of Jesus just take us off. And let's show it to the world around us today. It's what he wanted, a covenant relationship to walk with his people into a new land into a culture that they weren't used to, but with a relationship that said, I will be with you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, oh, man.